You're listening to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe, your escape to reality. Hello and welcome to The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is Tuesday, January 15th, 2019, and this is your host, Stephen Novella. Joining me this week are Bob Novella. Hey, everybody. Kara Santamaria. Howdy. Jay Novella. Hey, guys. And Evan Bernstein. Blast off! <laughs> you guys have seen <laughs> SpaceX's new rocket, the which they're now calling the Starship. Of course. This is the all-silver, yeah, you know, it. it's a steel exterior, and it looks like it's right out of the 1950s. Yeah, it is oh definitely retro in design. Now, I would think that my first thought of that rocket was, you know, how is aren't there like a lot of design concepts being broken here that, you know, can you make a rocket look like those cool rockets? Why not? Well, it looks like the most conserved shape you can think of. It's like perfect it's a for bullet. Di- yeah, aerodynamics, right? Yeah. Well, I do know Bob and I were having a nose cone discussion not too long ago, and there is like mm. real deep, complicated math about the shape of nose cones, depending on what what they have underneath them and the weight of the rocket and all this stuff. Like it's you know rocket science. So, <laughs> but you know, I look at this ship and I'm like, it's just beautiful. It's just beautiful. Like it like doesn't seem like anybody cared about the design from a um, engineering aspect. Do you know what I mean? It's just cool, <laughs> and that's why I was it's shocked. Pretty that it close. Exists. It's pretty close to the the proportions and shape of the ship from our logo. Not exact, but it's pretty close. Yeah, it needs to be taller. Oh, wow. Does that mean we get naming rights? <laughs> cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's also a lot of talk about the fact that there was so much steel used in the construction, which is like, wait, steel? Why not, you know, why not use uh, composites or, or titanium something or something? But actually, it makes a lot of sense. For the the stresses and uh, you know the the kind of the kind of launch it's going to be to use the steel. Does anyone uh, know any more some more details about that? Well, I mean it's consistent with that. You know, at one point I did this deep dive on like what's the best material to build stuff, and steel. it's it, yeah, it's amazing how steel is you know depending on the alloy and the way it's made, et cetera, is still pretty much cutting edge material for a lot of things. I mean, obviously, as you say, we have composites, you know, we have advanced materials that are. Are lighter, etc. But steel is still a great building material. And uh, from what I could tell, though, now this thing is not going to is not going to be able to launch from the surface of the Earth, you know, and, and take off and go into orbit. That will be for when, say, it's on the Moon or Mars, it will be able to do that. So they're going to have a booster underneath this mm-hmm. uh, if, when they launch this from the Earth. So that was something you might not expect. Yeah, those rockets look pretty small. If you look at the ship, those rockets don't look like it'd be able to put that thing into orbit. And also, I think those are mock-ups anyway. And uh, and also, right. and another good reason why that that probably wouldn't be, at least it wouldn't be very efficient, is the is the nozzle, the the bell-shaped nozzle there. I mean, that's one of the reasons why you why you have multiple stages to orbit is because that that the shape of that nozzle is is really specific to one type of uh, atmospheric pressure. One shape for that for that bell shape is not good for a launch from the Earth. So that's one of the reasons, I believe, why the multiple stages are so, are so much more efficient. Not only are you getting rid of all that extra weight, but also, you know, the exhaust nozzle has a, has a more efficient shape for that level of the atmosphere and atmospheric pressure that you're under. So that's why there's been talk uh, and designs for those for those inverted uh those inverted nozzles that are that are really freaky looking weird. So it's like a weird inverted shape of the nozzle. They're efficient. They're relatively efficient throughout the entire height of the atmosphere whereas the classic shape is efficient for only specific 
you know, specific altitudes. It needs to morph as as it gains an altitude to constantly optimize itself. Right. That would be maximally that would be maximally efficient, and uh, maybe yeah. someday we'll get there. Well, this actually segues nicely to our first news item, Jay, which is about how people are going to be able to live on Mars. So this suitcase idea is very similar to what it's like when we want to send people to the moon or to Mars. Like they need to have the exact right stuff to do what they need to do and not a stitch more. You know, they don't want to overpack because it costs millions of dollars to send the weight into space and they don't want to underpack because underpacking could mean death. Mm -hmm. And Mars is going to be the hardest thing that humans have ever done. It's going to probably be the hardest packing job that any human has ever done in the history of mankind, right? Without exaggeration. But question about yeah, that, Mars Jay. is a planet, Evan. Yes, you're correct. <laughs> oh, gosh, thank you. I thought it was a Greek god. Um, <laughs> what do you got? Won't they Roman. be shipping supplies ahead of time to Mars and kind sure. of you know store, stocking the stores? Yeah, but that's still part um, of the trip. Like whether they're going to send some drop-offs early on before people get there – and afterwards, hopefully, we're going to continue to resupply them. But they still have to have – whenever boots hit Mars, it has to have the stuff that they're going to need. And that's the question. What do they need? And how are they what going to survive? What do you take on the actual ship with you? Right, yeah. Yeah. It, what's, in your, what's in your overhead compartment? Yeah, it's not just the ship, though. It, it's all the ships. It could be like maybe they send 10 ships ahead of time. We still have to come up with the list of what they need, and, and we, we have to minimize what we send and, and maximize usability and function, right? So we have talked before about these future missions. You know, we talked about going to the moon, and, you know, they can make – fuel out of the regolith and, and get water and oxygen out of the moon's regolith. You know, we just need a, uh, you know, we need a furnace and a lots, of, lots of equipment that's going to allow them to extract th those things. But th the elements are there. You, you know, it's, it's just us to be able to figure out how to pull it out of the regolith. Um, and there's a huge cost savings and there's a lot of safety involved with that, right? You know, instead of bringing a full gas can with you, you bring an empty gas can with you and you fill it up at the moon. And use it for the return flight. It saves a ton of money. You know, it's just a great idea all around, no matter how you look at it. You know, making stuff on the site of where you're sending people to is the best way to do it. Some scientists right now are investigating this idea of using microbes to help with the needs of specific raw materials. And my God, I love this. I think this is such a cool idea. They would have to only use non-pathogenic microbes, right? Why? Because you don't want to bring microbes with you that can get people sick or, or, you know, if a freaky thing happens and they pick up some weird microbe or something happens on Mars with other, you know, bacteria, whatever. They want to pick, they want to pick microorganisms that are safe to use, that aren't going to transmit illnesses as best as we can. And scientists already know that microbes can transform one material into another, right? We, we absolutely know this. We, we play with this all the time and we create microbes to do specific things all the time. And as example, there's a yeast called Yarrowia lipolytica, Yarrowia lipolytica. And it can create fatty acids from the food it eats, right? Fatty acids are okay. useful. Scientists mm -hmm, yeah. speculated that if they could use human waste as its food source, it could solve two problems at once. Just because there's a good, you know, human waste is a huge problem on anything outside of the earth. Disposal mm -hmm. of waste and the creation of raw materials are the two things that these scientists are trying to solve. And, and it's easy to see that they're two very huge and important things that need to be dealt with. So human waste typically makes up, what, over half of all waste created on space missions. That's a lot. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not yeah. just talking about urine and feces. We're talking about carbon dioxide, exhaled moisture, dead skin cells and hair, food waste, 
you know, it's just it's just this list of what it costs to be a human on a spaceship. All, We've talked all, about it before, but we hear that the ISS is like dank oh. when you first walk. Oh in. yeah, oh, stinky. Yeah. stinky. <laughs> all the particles from people all over the place there. <laughs> you know, they can't just be spraying bleach around there. You know, they have to be very <laughs> yeah. careful. So the scientists are are they're experimenting now with modifying the genes of the yeast to allow it to make these fatty acids and they can do it. Oh, so another strain of yeast, um, they, they edited that yeast and they were able to make it make polyesters, which is cool as hell, which this could lead to making a host of different kinds of plastics for different applications. So different kinds of plastic, you know, imagine if they have the raw material, Hey, we need a really hard light, but yet strong plastic. Great. Okay. Now we need a flexible plastic. Great. You know, we have different bacteria that can create these different types of plastic, and then you put it into a 3D printer. You know, this is me oversimplifying it because there's a lot of stuff that would have to go on here to do this. But still, you know, they are creating these different bacteria that are doing these different things, and I think that's amazing. Um, Like, as an example, they're using cyanobacteria that can feed off of the carbon dioxide that's in Mars' atmosphere, and this could create sugars that would feed other microbes. You know, that, Mm. that bacteria eats CO2, and, and spits out sugars. Great. That's, that's cool. So I, I'm, I'm seeing that, you know, we're in the early, early stages of this, you know, but they have the end goal of being able to take human waste, you know, human byproduct and use that as a fuel source, which is brilliant. And if they can pull this off and, and start creating, um, you know, bacteria that can pump out different important things, like maybe, you know, one bacteria will actually, you know, pump out you know, oxygen, another one, you know, different different chemicals that could be used for different things. But right now, you know, I, I don't want to even say five to 10 years. There was no guesstimate or anything about like, you know, how long it would take or, you know, to ramp these things up. It's one thing to get a, a Petri dish to do something. It's another thing to make a machine that has these microbes in it that's predictably going to make a certain amount at a certain quality. That's very, very complicated. And there's mm-hmm. a lot of science that has to be discovered to do it. But I'm fascinated by this early you know, the scientific research that's going into some of these solutions. Yeah, I mean, the bottom line is that there's going to be this self-contained ecosystem in our biodome. Habitat. Yeah, the habitats yeah. on Mars. And we we have to think about where everything is coming and going. You know, we, and we have to recycle everything we exhale, everything that comes out of our body, basically. Right? Because there, yeah. no, there is no bio. There's no biosphere. Yeah. Right. There's, no, know, right? there's no cycle for any of these things. We'll be creating our own. We have to think about it all the way through. You know, that's why the movie The Martian was so spot on clever. And, and you yes. know, that, that character did some really interesting and legit things that people would, you know, we could use that as an idea of like, yeah, let's use bacteria. He needed his poop to be able to grow potatoes or everybody's right. poop to grow potatoes. Can you say it, poop on the show? Yeah, you could say. But if nothing else, Mars, <laughs> Shit, yeah. Mars is a great thought experiment, you know. Yep. And hopefully, at oh, some sure. point, it'll turn into a real experiment. But after the moon experiment, please. Yes. Yes. Agree. All right, Agreed. guys. Let's talk about memory. What we we, oh, right. we talk about memory a lot on the show, and you know, I've been following I don't a lot. Remember? Of, yeah, I've been following a lot of the research, and so there's been a study. This this is. Quick, this, this adds one more piece to this evolving puzzle that we're putting together, but it fits well with, you know, our bottom line lesson about how memory is constructive. So the, the researchers were looking at visual memory. A lot of the, a lot of this kind of uh, like how the brain processes information kind of research does involve vision because it's it's kind of an easy model in the brain to follow and to model. This is the question. 
when you remember something, right? Like if I show you a picture and then an hour from now I tell you, think of that picture that I showed you an hour ago. What process does your brain go through? What's the first thing that happens? And then how does it bring up that memory? How does it construct it? And the big question is, when you recall something, does it follow the same pattern as when you perceived it in the first place? I know the or answer. Did, or does <laughs> it follow a different pattern? It follows so, the exact reverse pattern. It follows the opposite pattern. That's right. So a, huh. a lot of uh, the, the mainstream media is reported that says that our memories work backwards. But actually, it's more complicated than that, as you might imagine. So let's get back to vision. When you perceive something, right? You're looking at a giraffe, let's say. All right. First, you have the raw image in your retina. That goes through your the midbrain, the subcortical structures for vision, which where already a lot of basic processing is happening. But mm-hmm. that's just like you know, very basic details uh, of the image processing. When it gets to your cortex is when things happen, like it's uh, sharpening up contrast and lines and color and accounting for shadows and things like that. But then it has to go to the next level, which is the association cortex, where it turns the pattern that it's perceiving into a thing, right? Into a noun. Yeah, that's not just a shape and colors. It's a giraffe, right? It makes a fit to something in your memory that it that it knows what it is. Something computer vision's pretty bad at doing. That well, humans are are so far still better you know, at this mm. kind of visual pattern recognition. Yeah. Oh, we're optimized for it. Yeah. yeah, and then it beyond that, then it goes to your to the rest of the cortex. If it's if if your brain thinks it's acting with agency, it connects to your emotional centers and basically connects to how do I feel about that thing, and if it doesn't act with agency then we think of it as an object, right? And, and mm. it, co- it connects to our memories for what is, the, what is that object? Do I need it? Is it food? Is it you know, something valuable, right? For the emotional stuff is like, is this somebody I love? Is it something threatening? Is it something I need to run away from or whatever? So in, in a way, the visual perception starts with the details and then evolves to the higher order meaning or theme. Although that's an oversimplification because we we also know that the higher level visual areas communicate back down to the primary visual cortex. So once that raw image is resolved into a giraffe, mm-hmm. you know the the higher part of your brains in terms of the the visual association cortex identifies it as a giraffe. It then communicates back down to the primary cortex and says, "Make that look more like a giraffe." Um, this is, the, and also it, huh. it influences assumptions about how big something is, for example. When yeah. your brain's like, oh, that's a giraffe. Well, now you know roughly how big giraffes are. So then it makes, that affects its assumptions about how far away it is, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's not two inches tall. It's, or how big, how tall are giraffes? 20 feet, 15 uh, feet? 100 big. feet tall. They, they reach the trees. <laughs> the, and then, but Steve, that's, therefore, that's a it must be a point there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right, that's because because you know how big roughly a giraffe is, but if you see something undefined, unidentified, uh, you and you don't know how big, you know innately how big it is, you could imagine it's a lot closer or a lot or a lot farther away, depending on what size you just yes. happen to pick. 
so the perception, you know, and getting from seeing, you know, the raw image into your memory is actually a two-way sh- constructive street. It's a two-way street and it's a constructive process and you're communicating both up and down, right? Not just up. And that's a f- it's massively affecting how you construct those images. And we talked about a recent news item where they showed that your memory of uh, of what you're seeing actually influences you, what you're, how you construct that image more than what you're seeing, you know, in a mm-hmm. way. Mm-hmm. So like once you, you know what mm-hmm. giraffes look like and so your brain is like, okay, that's a giraffe I'm constructing. Out of what I'm seeing, I'm going to construct a giraffe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, and that's especially with ambiguous images. When you have an ambiguous image and this was the study, yeah, this effect. was the specific study that was done, what you think it is influences your construction more than the actual details that you're seeing. Um, okay. okay, so that now they're sense. saying, all right, forget about perception. Let's just talk about you recalling something you've previously seen. What process does that go through? And so, as Jay already alluded to, it works the opposite way of raw perception in that it starts with the the big higher order theme and then backfills the details. Now, the, the media was presenting this as surprising and the opposite of what researchers thought. And my reaction was, that's exactly what I would have thought is happening. <laughs> and that's totally consistent with a whole bunch of other research, right? Because we know that a thematic memory is actually – or you know, what's called semantic memory is dominant in a lot of ways and that the detailed memory actually serves the – the thematic memory, right? So we know we saw a giraffe, so our brain just fills in the giraffe details to make it all make sense, regardless of what we actually saw. So that, as you say, Bob, that has huge impacts skeptically because, okay, it works fine when you're looking at a giraffe because giraffes are giraffes, right? And maybe you might miss some details because your brain's filling in generic giraffe details to the big picture that that was a giraffe. That's why we talked about this with birding. And once you learn about a lot of specific birds, your brain fills in the details you know. And there are times like when you're in that process of learning how to resolve like hundreds of birds where before you go, yeah, there were little brown birds and there were this big blue bird. You know what I mean? Like you were mm-hmm. you were conflating a lot of birds into a few generic types. Your brain didn't fill in the details. But then when you know those details, then your brain fills them in. And then you actually see different details. Because right, so believe seeing is not believing so much as believing is seeing. What you know influences. And so this is perfectly consistent with that. But it also means that when you see what you think is a flying saucer and then you remember what you saw, your brain remembers, I saw a flying saucer, and then fills in the details to match the theme. It doesn't remember the details, really. Yeah, in the case of flying saucers, you know, you think flying saucer, what's the first – the first thing that comes to my mind is Steven Spielberg's, you know, Close Encounters of the Third Time. That's – and I fill my brain with that information sort of first and work – and and work from there. Whatever your bias is, if you think it's – if you think Forbidden Planet or whatever, whatever Mm -hmm. your image of a flying saucer is. Or if you think you saw saw Bigfoot, right? Your memory literally morphs to the details of Bigfoot because – you're right. you're really re- you're remembering Bigfoot and then just backfilling the details. Right. So if the if the real image if the raw image that you originally saw had a tail, that tail would probably disappear as you as you recalled yeah. mm-hmm. it and uh, and and put the filter of Bigfoot over it. 
Right. Wait, let me write this down. Bigfoot has a tail. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's why Thanks, when people say, I know what I saw, there's, oh pro- there's probably oh, no the more worst. naive statement that you could possibly make. <laughs> Mm. No, you. I. Yeah. No, I think I saw it with my own eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's a good one too. Remember, Dad used to uh, talk to us about the Lady of Fatima. And, yeah. Uh, oh no. You know, well, you know, keep in mind, my dad was born in 1930. Yeah. And you know, he he really wanted to believe. You know, it was comforting for him. And uh, he would talk about the people there. It was like you know thousands of people there, and they, they saw her. They saw her. You know, that meant so much to him. When we see something, even if, even as a skeptic, when I see something that I know I'm not, you know, that something weird could be going on, it's a powerful, visceral thing when your brain tells you, you just saw something. It's Mm. hard to question that. It's very difficult to question. I question audio all the time. Visual, not not anywhere near as much. All right, let's move on. Evan, tell Mm -hmm. me, why are elephants losing their tusks? This was originally reported back in November courtesy of National Geographic, but the news is, it's hitting the news cycles again this week, and I don't know why, but it's everywhere now. And they're talking about elephants without tusks. Um, so these elephants with a rare tuskless genetic trait, turns out, had a better chance of surviving yeah. Mozambique's long civil war. About a third of surviving elephants' daughters have no tusks, hmm. which is fascinating, yeah. which is way above what was just the average uh, a generation prior, 2 to 4%. Now we're talking, we're in the 30 percentile now. Researchers at the University of Kent are working on understanding the genetics of elephants born without tusks, along with the consequences of the trait. So during the Mozambican War, Civil War, I should say, nearly 90% of the elephants in the Gorongosa National Park were slaughtered as part of an ivory trade that helped finance the weapons used in the conflict. You know, it's, it's horribly, horribly sad, this, this story, on so many levels. Hunting gave elephants that didn't grow tusks a biological advantage, which sort of makes sense. The figure is that, yeah, a third of younger females, the generation that was born after the war had ended in 1992, never developed tusks. So way, way beyond what the, the prior generations. Um, according to elephant behavior expert Joyce Poole, uh, that several decades ago, there were four th- roughly 4,000 of these elephants living in that park. But those numbers dwindled to less than 1,000 following the Civil War. And their new but so far unpublished research that she's compiled indicates that of the 200 known adult females, 51% of them that survived the war, these are animals that are 25 years or older, they are tuskless. And 32% of the female elephants born since were also tuskless. This trend is not limited to Mozambique either, uh, not just necessarily out of war, but just poaching in general. Other countries with a history of substantial ivory poaching are seeing these shifts as well. For example, South Africa... 98% 98% of the 174 females in Addo Elephant National Park were reportedly tuskless in the early 2000s. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. The ivory trade is uh, rife with pseudoscience um, and things we talk about regularly on the show. They are said to, by some to have restorative powers and healing powers. And even though China was kind of late to the game, they only imposed a ban on ivory in 2017, but it's still one of the countries where it is most sought after. And they, they pay more than ivory. They pay more for ivory than they do for gold in mm-hmm. some cases. Wow. They grind it up. They ingest it. 
and they tout it as being a cure for numerous diseases. Yeah, I mean, we're even seeing like with rhino horn, for example, Mm -hmm. preemptive cutting off of their horns, unfortunately. In order to spare them. Just to spare the animal, yeah. So they can can survive. I wonder if we'll have hornless rhinos Mm -hmm. uh, someday. We may see that happening somewhere. Yeah. Now, um, so I understand that the reason for this particular case of elephant populations, you know, is because the ones who didn't have the tusks obviously were the ones that weren't shot. So they're the survivors of the group. Does this cause a problem though, long-term sort of a long-term negative impact in that you now have a smaller selection of genetics among the elephants, less diversity in the population. And does that help speed up extinction of these animals? Well, it just depends. It depends on previous levels of connectivity. So if you're talking about a group of organisms that disconnected from other, like if it's a subspecies or, you know, a group of organisms that for a very long time have had an island effect, then yeah, Mm -hmm. then you're talking about a subgroup of a subgroup. And it may be too small or too minimal in genetic variants. But but is that really secondary to this effect, this hunting effect, or is it secondary to the fact that there's been so much habitat loss that these organisms are stuck in with a small range and aren't interbreeding? I mean, that's the really sad thing when we look at, you know, biodiversity in general. It's across the board during the Anthropocene, human caused. Like the the lack, or I should say the the decimation of biodiversity across the globe is because of shit we did, whether it's yeah, habitat loss are, or hunting mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever. We are squeezing out the living space yeah. of, the, of these animals and so many of them. But I don't think that just a shift in gene frequencies to favoring no tusks necessarily means a, of a decrease in genetic diversity, Evan, to answer that okay. question. Yeah. Uh, because the, 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 this was already in the population. That's the other thing that's interesting is we think we, we still are sort of biased by the old creationist notion of kinds. Like we think of, this is what an elephant looks like. Yeah. But we really have to think about species with all of their diversity. And again, my birding experience was really useful for this because I would see weird birds and be like, what the hell is that? That doesn't look like the picture in the book. And then I'll find out, well, 3% look this way. You know what I mean? So there's exceptions mm-hmm. to everything. There's so much diversity within species. And this is exactly why, because you have this new selective pressure mm-hmm. and there already was, there ready already was, you know, these 3% of the elephants without tusks ready to, to, you know, to adapt right. to this new pressure. But the, the question is, if it really was 3%, it's a massive reduction in, in gene flow. Well, right, that, you know, so but it, it might it might not be three percent. It might be twenty percent, and if that's the case, mm-hmm. you know, then it wouldn't really. But yeah, if only, and it's it's simply because we're talking about like within two generations, all of the tusked elephants being wiped out, or within three generations, that's, that's the problem. It's it doesn't I have really, enough time in our to lifetime, rebound. This is all happening. Yeah, it's crazy. It's it's quick, and if it's really a small percentage of the organisms that are already critically endangered, then it does really reduce genetic variance. But if it's a, actually a larger percentage that was going to be born tuskless anyway, it might not affect uh, that genetic variance at all. I think that we would, but do we even know those numbers? Well, there's several studies going mm-hmm. on at uh, various universities and teams of researchers uh, looking into that and other questions. So I think in the coming years, we're going to have a lot more information about that. Gosh, if we can keep them alive, that's the important thing, right? And I hope so. Yeah. I hope so. I hope there's enough will to do so. Mm-hmm. All right. Thanks, Evan. Yep. Kara 
Yes. This, so this is an interesting study that came out recently about why people are opposed to GMOs. I don't know how far, how deeply you delved into the controversy over this, but we'll get to that. But why don't you tell us just basically what it found first? Yeah. So so um, Steve actually recommended this article to me. And I love how when you say recently, it was legit published yesterday um, <laughs> as of this recording. So, it was so yesterday. I know, so yesterday. So this was published in Nature Human Behavior. Um, title is Extreme Opponents of Genetically Modified Foods Know the Least But Think They Know the Most. Does even just that title remind you guys of anything that we talk about a lot on the show? Let's see. Knowing the um, least, but thinking you know the most. Dunning-Kruger. Dunning-Kruger. So Steve wrote a blog post just today on Dunning-Kruger and this GMO opposition. The main takeaways of this are that um, multiple studies were done within the same study. Pretty big population, or sorry, pretty big sample size. 500 people were asked about GM foods, basically. And they were asked a bunch of questions. And in those questions, they were able to come up with three ways to sort of label these people. They were able to figure out the people's objective knowledge about both science in general and their um, objective knowledge about genetics in general. And this is based on like um, a, a classic survey, I think that was published by somebody, the National Academies or something, or the NIH, you know, asking basic things like what is a building blocker of the nucleus of the cell or um, the genetic stuff like do animals and plants have DNA? Um, and just getting basic knowledge about that. But they also were like, okay, we're going to compare that to how opposed they are to genetically modified food. And, you know, historically, we've known for a long time that when it comes to science communication and our approaches to science communication, we've always wanted to believe that it's just a knowledge gap. The more we teach people, the more they're going to have objective views of these things and agree with the scientists mm. and not have biases and not be subject to pseudoscientific um, propaganda. And, you know, the more often we dig deep into this, the more we learn. Yeah, it's not a knowledge deficit problem solely. So then these researchers were like, okay, well, you know, they, they compared objective knowledge to how extremely opposed people were to GM foods. And they found that, yeah, you know, kind of the less people know, the more they might be opposed, but it's not a really strong, uh, there, there's, you know, some significant differences there, but I'm not seeing like a really super, super strong trend. What I really want to know is what about how much people think they know versus how opposed they are? Because that's a different question, right? How much do you mm -hmm. know is very different from how much do you think you know. And that's where Dunning-Kruger really mm -hmm. comes in. So what they decided to do is look at how much people think they know and compare that to the extremity of their opposition. And they measured that, you know, in different quartiles or whatever. They noticed that people who think they know a whole lot but actually know very little tend to be extremely opposed to GM. Or maybe you can say it the other way around. People that tend to be extremely opposed to GM technology, especially when it comes to food. They did find that this relationship was stronger for food than it was for like medical genetic manipulation. Um, they found that people who tend to be extremely opposed to it tend to know little but think they know an awful lot. The difference here is that it was actually greater effect than we usually see with Dunning-Kruger. So 
a little quick primer, as you guys might say. I've always said primer. Actually, Steve, I think you say primer too, right? <laughs> or maybe I'm wrong. Um, anyway, about <laughs> you say both. Yeah. So about Primer's Dunning Kruger. In <laughs> thank you, Bob. <laughs> in case if you guys don't remember, and the only reason this is really fresh in my mind is because I wrote a paper about it recently for school, which means I read 15 articles authored by David Dunning and probably 15 other replication articles. Dunning who is a social psychologist, Kruger, Justin Kruger, who was his um, graduate student at the time, they published a, a landmark paper in 1990, one of the highest cited social psychology papers of all time, where they showed this effect that can be replicated across fields. It's been replicated so many times at this point that people who do poorly on tests of whether it be knowledge or skill or insight or whatever the case may be, but who think that they do, will often think that they do significantly better than they actually did. And what they think is the mechanism behind that, and this has been argued, there's been a lot of controversy around it, but I think the consensus right now in the social psychology literature is that the mechanism that explains why people do poorly, the people that do poorly, like let's say the, I think in the article, it was like the people who scored within the 15th percentile tend to think they're scoring within like the 65th percentile Whoa. is because they're lacking the metacognitive abilities to be able to do an appropriate self-assessment. If they're lacking in knowledge or they're lacking in insight, they're also lacking in the knowledge or insight to be able to reflect on how well they know things or how well they do things. And so this is what they think is the fundamental mechanism behind that. But there have been alternative, alternative hypotheses that have been proposed. So these researchers kind of say something similar um, as they're closing up their article. And I did find one thing that I want to quote before Steve, we get into some of the things that you noted. Um, Our findings highlight a difficulty that's not generally appreciated. Those with the strongest anti-consensus views are the most in need of education, but also the least likely to be receptive to learning. Overconfidence about one's knowledge is associated with decreased openness to new information. This suggests that a prerequisite to changing people's views through education may be getting them to first appreciate the gaps in their knowledge, which is a very, very tall order. So that's the really consensus in the paper or the the takeaway in the paper about the genetically modified foods, which was actually the headline of the paper. They they secondarily looked at climate change and found a very different outcome. They didn't well, find it a was significant. The, it was the same it, pattern, but it wasn't statistically significant. Yeah, it wasn't statistic, and it wasn't by any stretch as great. You know, the effect yeah. size one is, wasn't as great. And they argue mm. that this is perhaps because it's the knowledge has become partisanly entrenched at that point. Mm-hmm. It's very different than something like climate change, which is really, or I'm sorry, than something like GMOs, which is cool. They have a a scale in their study, built into their study, where they looked at partisanship, and they found that this held for people who were conservative liberal mm-hmm. or moderate the gm thing this is yeah, not a partisan issue well. yeah not a partisan issue which yeah. i think is bust some myths because most people think this is like only a hippie granola lefty thing mm-hmm. no it's not true so yeah. what's interesting about mm-hmm. the, the political thing is so the question is uh is there really a difference between gmos and uh global warming because the, yeah. the trends were the same and you know what I mean? Just the magnitude was different. Uh, or is it an artifact of this study or they just didn't have enough data? Or is there really a difference? And the authors mm-hmm. were arguing that it's, you know, it could, could be really a difference because it could all come down to is the belief ideological or not. And yeah. they cited other research which showed that whether or not a belief is ideological actually does have a huge effect on whether or not it predicts lack of factual knowledge about that topic. Yeah. Um, 
right? So for the idea is that people come to their global warming denial because of their politics, whereas people come to their anti-GMO views because they are being misinformed. They're not starting with an ideology or a tribe. They're, they're, they are being misinformed, and therefore that would reflect greater in their lack of knowledge about the topic. And also, didn't they say that they, they tended to, correct me if I'm wrong, that people with the anti-climate change view, the, the kind of denialist view, still tended to rate relatively high on objective knowledge about science? It, or mm. the people who rated high versus the people who rated low had the same kind of entrenched oppositional views. And so that was a little bit different than what they saw with yeah, um, yes, the GMO stuff. Right. Opposition, ideological opposition didn't necessarily predict scientific knowledge or self-assessment, yeah. but but non-ideological opposition does. So I mm. think at the very least, what this is suggesting is that the, these are different phenomena, right? These are not the same thing, an ideological belief versus something like that's not political or partisan like GM foods. Yeah. And they said that vac previous vaccine denialism research was more like the GM foods than yes. like the climate change research. Right. Which fits because yeah. that's also not mm. partisan, strictly partisan. Yeah. So the other, the other, in controversy. This is actually playing out in real time in my comments. I actually have a oh a, gosh, a big, I didn't look at the comments. I, it's a long comment I have to respond to now. So this guy <laughs> Brian Lovett, and again, this is happening in real time, so it's not maybe not fair to 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 talk about it too much. But he wrote a series of tweets criticizing the study, and I do think that some of his criticisms are fair. And I had the mm -hmm. same thoughts when I was reading it. Ten questions isn't an awful lot, you know, of science questions. Um, right. And also, it was you know I was interested in how they were scoring it. So I think that uh, I would love to see follow up research with much more robust assessment of of scientific literacy of different subtypes of scientific literacy. Mm -hmm. But his point is that he disagrees with the authors who are saying that this evidence supports the knowledge deficit model, right? That belief in pseudoscience occurs because of people have a knowledge deficit. He thinks it's because of active misinformation, which is what I was saying in my discussion of the article. That this, but I feel like they made a more nuanced presentation. I agree. They weren't saying this it's is, one or the other. I agree. It's both. I yeah. agree. This is where I, I'm about to write a response where I say gotcha. I disagree with you because yeah. I and also uh, it's a total false dichotomy mm -hmm. because misinformation leads to a measured lack of knowledge, yeah. right? Because if I give you a wrong scientific fact, you will then test wrong about mm -hmm. your knowledge on that fact. And it's not just due to ignorance, it's due to misinformation. So there's, they're, they're part of the same thing in a way. Mm -hmm. But the question is, the difference is one gives you more of an illusion of knowledge. Misinformation gives you more of an illusion of knowledge than uh, just straight up ignorance. Yeah, ignorance is different than being willfully or not even willfully than being misinformed. You're right, right, because then you feel like you know something. Yes. And you might feel very strongly like you know something, especially if the propaganda machine is very detailed and you've studied it a lot. I also I refer to this as a super D DK super Dunning Kruger, which is I just mm -hmm. made up that term on the fly when I was writing my blog <laughs> because it's more severe than the standard. It's uh, not gap. just it's not just more severe; it's a reversal. So for for Dunning Kruger, the lower your your performance, the lo mm -hmm. the lower your test score, the lower your self assessment, but the gap between your self assessment and your test score increased as you got lower. 
you know, below 70th percentile. Does that make sense? So somebody who well, scored- Well, they did, they did two studies in Dunning-Kruger. They compared self-assessment as a um, absolute score, mm-hmm. and they also compared self-assessment as you are compared to other people. And they actually found that, yes, if you scored lower, you tended to think you scored lower objectively. But um, if you scored lower, you tended to think that you scored higher than most people. No, no, no. That's what, that's exactly what I'm saying. Oh, okay, that, cool. Yeah. So if you yeah. look at it, whether absolute score or percentile, either mm-hmm. way. So let's say you scored in the 70th percentile. You pretty much thought you were about the 70th percentile. Except and for the highest percentile. Above that, you, you underestimated your performance a little bit. But if yeah. you scored... 40, I'm just giving you now sort of representative yeah. numbers, then you thought you did 60. Mm-hmm. And they, but if you did 20, you thought you did 50. So the gap increases. Yeah. But everyone thought they did above average. Even when you were in the 10th percentile, everyone thought they did oh. above average. And just yeah. that, that gap increased, but the, the, both of the lines were still going down. But in this study, it, the, you know, for the extremes, again, this is the other thing, it's just for the extremes – the line actually reverses and goes up, that their assessment of how they did was actually higher mm-hmm. than people who performed better on the test. Does that make sense? So it didn't – not only did the gap increase, the actual direction of the line went up. So which, people which with lower of- scores actually had higher – so that's different than DK. That's different than Dunning-Kruger. That's why I called it super. And I think yeah. that that reflects misinformation. That's the result of propaganda. You know, that's yeah, that's not like just fundamentalism, right? The more that you like are really um, emotionally invested in a certain type of answer or yes. a certain type of viewpoint, the more entrenched that view becomes, the more severe it is as well. Yes, the more you stick to it, you know, the less right. waffly you are about it. Yeah, but I, um, I think it's also it's suggesting strongly that there's another phenomenon. So, like mm-hmm. Dunning Kruger is mainly about metacognitive failure. Although yeah. you, you can't – even Dunning says it's also about this illusion of knowledge that people fill in the gaps. They fill in their real gaps of knowledge with this illusory knowledge. Mm-hmm. But I think what we're seeing here is active misinformation. Like the anti-vaccine movement and the anti-GMO movement are actively misinforming people and that gives you this reversal of mm-hmm. the trend where they actually think they know more when they know less. But not because they have a lack of knowledge because that that – place where the knowledge should be is filled in with wrong knowledge. And, and, the, and the important Yes. Point. And they're not passively yeah. filling it in with uh, uh, confirmation bias, for example. They're, it's being actively filled in mm-hmm. by a propaganda campaign. Yeah. So, yeah, anyway, this is complicated. It's hard to disentangle all of this. I agree it's not a simple knowledge deficit. I think that the, you know, the, 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 the guy who's criticizing it on my blog is, is being too simple, I think, and too easy. Yeah, even the authors agree it's not a simple knowledge deficit. Something that that kind of stuck out to me, and again, this might be more nuanced, so it might not be that relevant, but it was interesting that, you know, they they had to, in order to do all their statistical analyses, they had to, like, box the responses into quartiles or however they did it, percentiles. Um, And they looked at the level of opposition, and they looked at the level of concern, and they they built out a, a whatever, like a a measure of how opposed people are to GM technology. And the interesting thing is that most people that they interviewed are opposed to GM technology. It's just how opposed they were that Mm -hmm. showed the differentiation along that kind of um, scale. So I wonder too, if 
the same. I don't know. I don't want to say it's a critique of the methodology because it just shook out that way. Most people, maybe American citizens, are not knowledgeable about it. And most people, you mentioned in your blog post, it's got the biggest gap between lay knowledge and scientific Mm -hmm. approval of everything else that was asked about in that Pew survey. Right. And listen to this. This is a a statistic that blows me away. In a previous survey, 50% of people think that GMO tomatoes have genes and regular tomatoes don't have genes. What? Fifty percent, half. That's uh-huh. that is and that right, right there is straight See, up knowledge gap. That's knowledge gap. <laughs> yeah. That's an absolutely yeah. knowledge deficit. That's not that's understanding right. what it. a gene is. That that has so much less yeah. to do with propaganda and so much more to do with not having a basic fundamental basic biology. Yep. Yeah. But yeah, not, overall, 90% of people were opposed. It was just how that opposed was, were they? That's, yeah. that's pretty striking. Yeah. yeah. Anyway. That's higher than previous surveys that we had it around 81 or something percent. Mm, mm-hmm. uh, oh but gosh, very high. Are we losing this war? You know? I don't know. I, mean, geez, I don't know. This is tough. This is tough. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, KiwiCo. I love KiwiCo. I love it. I love doing these projects with my kids. KiwiCo creates you know, these hands-on projects. Like as an example, you could teach your, your young child about steam and how cool is steam. Yeah, you mean science, technology, engineering, arts, and math, don't you? I do. How did you care? You you took my joke away from me. (laughs) KiwiCo projects are designed to spark creativity, tinkering, and learning skills in kids of all ages. Everything is created by KiwiCo's team of in-house product designers and rigorously tested by kids and adults. They've even got different crates for different levels, different ages. The tadpole crate is for infants. Wow, they have kits just for infants. All the way up through the koala crate for preschoolers and the eureka crate for teens over 14. It's it's really cool. Their mission is to empower kids, not just to make a project, but also to make a difference. Yeah, I've done several of these with my daughters already, and they enjoyed. Every one has been great. You know, making a desk lamp or a vacuum chamber or a radio. I mean, it's, they're great. Now, I, I, isn't it true at like the sixteen-year-old crate that you get, you could actually time travel? Well, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay. So KiwiCo is offering the Skeptics Guide to the Universe listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem the offer and learn more, visit kiwico.com/skeptics. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. All right, Bob, you're going to talk about, and why do I feel like we've talked about this many times before, <laughs> room temperature superconductivity. Is this finally a thing or what? We we have, yeah, we've talked about superconductivity uh, a lot, but we've talked about lots of topics a lot. But there's like, there's nice little <laughs> updates and tweaks, and this one is, uh, I think it's worth uh, worth another chat. All right, hit me. So, all right, so an, an interesting milestone for superconductivity is in the news. Two independent experiments shows superconductivity with a high-pressure metallic hydrogen-rich compound hydrogen. at at 255 Kelvin. Now, so that's minus 1 Fahrenheit or minus 18 Celsius. 
That's that's big. So all right. So you probably that ain't noticed, no room temperature though. So, well, oh come on, <laughs> one, like one degree Fahrenheit. Oh my God! I'll t- if you work outside and it, it, this winter, it's it's room temperature. So um, you probably <laughs> noticed the words. <laughs> I, I said high pressure. Misunderstanding what room temperature refers <laughs> to. I, I said I what, said high what pressure. Seventy two degrees. Yeah. So high. What do I mean by high pressure? We're talking one hundred and seventy seven GPA, otherwise known as gigapascals. So yeah, uh-huh. 177 billion pascals. So a pascal is a unit of pressure defined as one newton per square meter. So imagine a cubic meter. You put a fig newton on it. You know, you get the idea. <laughs> Wait a minute, you're confusing. And me. so all right. So what we're really talking about here is about two million atmospheres worth of pressure. So yeah, Ooh, this yeah, is that's incredible pressure. And yeah, it's insane. But basically, it it, it really is for all intents and purposes super uh, room temperature superconductivity. Um, and it's amazing, uh, amazing because as we as we all should know, high temp- high temperature superconductivity or room temperature um, would, would revolutionize electrical efficiency. Yeah. The impact is incalculable. Power grids, high speed data transfer, electrical motors, et cetera, et cetera, and ten more et cetera's are uh, a literal game changer. I'll throw out a quote here. Madari Somaya Zulu, love her, love her, uh, the last name, is an associate research professor at the George Washington School of Engineering and Applied Science, said room temperature superconductivity has been the proverbial holy grail waiting to be found and achieving it, albeit at two million atmospheres, is a paradigm changing moment in the history of science. Um, so to put that into context, uh, I'll describe what what uh, what I will refer to as the three ages of superconductivity. So in the first age, we had the first observation of superconductivity, 1911, a huge, huge event, amazing observation. I imagine the first person like, whoa, no electrical resistance. What the hell? Uh, this was in solid mercury uh, below the critical temperature of 4.2 Kelvin. Real quick, Kelvin is an absolute thermodynamic temperature scale. Zero K uh, is the lowest possible temperature. You can't get any lower by definition. And that's minus. No negatives. That's minus 459.67 Fahrenheit, minus 273 Celsius. Where matter stands still. Essentially, for all intents and purposes, you can't get absolute. Uh, stillness, but uh, it's it's as still as it's going to get. No, no, no real movement, uh, okay. uh, or very, very little. The, the minimum. Can we just call it refrigerated superconductivity? This is refrigerator temperature. <laughs> Can we be clear about that? <laughs> I get that it's not crazy cold like it's always been in the past, but it still requires like a machine. Right, and you and also two million atmospheres. So yeah, this, yeah, is, this, this yeah, is a laboratory. The this, yeah. this is this is a laboratory. We're talking about you know you know what what's our confidence levels for real room temperature superconductivity in the in the future. So, mm. but back in these early days, um, the progress was really slow. I mean, there was a lot of enthusiasm, but if you, I love this statistic. If you simplistically extrapolate the progress that was made in superconductivity from 1911 to 1970, we would have room temperature superconductivity in the year 2840. Really slow, very little progress. But that leads me into the second age. Um, And that's, (laughs) I'll call that high temperature superconductivity. Well, lots of people call it that. HTS, high temperature Mm -hmm. superconductivity. This this realm was discovered by IBM researchers in uh, 1986 in ceramic materials. Steve, Jay, um, I yeah, know. I I'm not sure that. about you, yes. Jay, but I remember that. That was huge. I was so excited. This was a huge advance. I mean, it really was because you're going from what was approximately 4.2 Kelvin to about 133 
So 133 is a huge leap. That's a huge leap from 4.2. And re- things really looked um, looked uh, amazing and promising. And I would have thought by 2019, we would have our superconducting wire at Home Depot. Uh, all right, enough of that. I'll stop complaining. But that was a second age. And uh, things looked really, really promising. So now, um, so to follow the previous age's initialism, I'll call this third age RTS or room temperature Superconductivity, Kara, room temperature. Yeah, thank true, you. True, true room temperature. <laughs> and, and Real quick, the- though, the high temperature, when you said those numbers, you meant positive, not negative, right? 133 Kelvin or minus 220 minus Fahrenheit. Minus 220. Okay, minus so it was warmer, but still warmer. very, very cold. It's, and still, gotcha. hey, yeah, compared to compared to near absolute zero, 133K is bomby. Mm-hmm. Bomby, baby. Um, <laughs> so you could argue that we are essentially on the cusp of this of this third of this third age re, uh, room temperature. This is a it, it is an amazing leap. Uh, at the very least, we're we're seeing very confident hits hints of what what soon may be possible. So let me get into a little bit of the nitty gritty. The, the researchers used diamond anvils to compress hydrogen and lanthanum, uh, resulting in a new compound, LAH10. It's a lanthanum hydride, basically uh, a lanthanum atom surrounded by 10 hydrogen atoms. So it's, it's hydrogen, but it's, got, it's like doped with this, this one little atom in here. So th- these anvils compressed it to 170 to 185 gigapascals. Um, and the transition, the, 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 the transition to superconductivity was at 250 to 260 K. Uh, way, that's really high. That's 50 degrees. That's a 50 degree leap from the previous um, high temperature uh, using this this methodology. This this wasn't just a serendipitous discovery, however. This is an interesting angle to this whole thing. This was specifically predicted. That's because they're using this. A lot of this is computation based. A lot of quantum mechanics based computations uh, are being used to to determine which compounds are most promising. So this lanthanum hydride uh, was predicted. Uh, other predictions say that co- compounds may be discovered that could reach 290 degrees K, and that's uh, 62 degrees Fahrenheit, 17 Celsius. How's that, Kara? Is that more closer to room temperature f- for you? Um, getting there. So, yeah, getting there. <laughs> yeah, I forget you're on the West Coast. All right, so, so the final question here is, uh, yeah, Bob, this is all cool, but all right, <laughs> it's going to be – but what about these stupid pressures? I mean, that's ridiculous. These high gigapascal pressures, they're, how impractical can you – possibly be. I agree, but we're still in a lab at this point. And uh, my point is that using these computational advances, we may be able to predict other configurations beyond these binary hydrides that I've been talking about uh, to superconduct at room temperature that are also stable when decompressed. So that's, that's where we, that's the ultimate goal right here. We want something that, that you can, you don't need you know these gigapascal pressures, but something that 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 is stable at at sea level wouldn't that be nice? So so perhaps a a, a reasonable goal um, would be that the only compression that would be required would not be two million atmospheres, but something more akin to the pressure you would generate when you swing a hammer, say, or when they turn dust into pills for uh, at, at your at your you know when they're when they're making uh, medicines that deliver that go to the pharmacy. I mean you know minute pressure, something that could just you know just a quick pressure that would that would create the final structure that's stable at, at you know at not only room temperature uh, but also uh, you know one at, at sea level. So that that's the goal. Obviously, that's where we're going toward, towards. And this is the uh, the best hint that I've come across that we may really be seeing something like that, uh, you know, within a generation or, or, or even sooner. So five to 10 years? 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Who knows? Hey. But uh, I think it'll be shorter than the distance between 1986 and 2019, I hope. <laughs> I hope. <laughs> hey, Bob, is, is this the – I remember going to the World Science Fair a few years ago, and there was a guy from some university showing a demo that I thought had to do with superconductivity where he was using dry ice on, like, yeah. a ring. Yeah, with the, like, puck things, and they were sort yeah. of levitating. Okay. Cool. Yeah, and that, yeah, that, yeah, that, that's the the Meisner effect showing the effect mm-hmm. of superconductivity on uh, on magnetic fields, and uh, yeah, and that actually um, applies to, to to the story I just told. But uh, so look it up, Google it online, and find out how the yeah. how Meisner, how the Meisner uh, principle applies to that. It's really cool. Maybe we should do a demo of that sometime at like a live. Oh, show. I'd, I'd love it. I'd love. Wouldn't it. that be fun? Sure. Yeah. Meisner right. not the. It's a Meisner effect. All right, Jay. Who's that noisy? Last week I played this noisy. What is that? A sad dog robot? Wh- Sounds like a dog whistle almost. Uh, Some people guess that, Evan. That's uh, not, not, you know, I don't think it's a bad guess. Jay, is it a critter? An animacule? It is a critter. <laughs> An animacule. Is it a giraffe? It's a funny word. <laughs> so Chris, <laughs> Chris Sanders, you guys are, are really drawing a blank here. So Chris Sanders said, <laughs> listeners It's said, a water bear. Jay, Listen up. Oh, it's tardigrade. Yeah, it's a tardigrade. My guess for this week's noisy, that high-pitched whistle sound is the adorable high-pitched noise that dogs often make when they yawn or stretch. Aww. At this point, I'm going to say that a lot of people guessed this one. So one listener, I just wanted to mention that this one listener, Zan Newberger, he guessed right, but or she, it could be a girl as well, uh, guessed right. I'm not going to say what the answer is yet, but this person said, I'm going to send in an answer for every noisy this year, good, good, bad, or indifferent, mm-hmm. which I'm psyched about. Good. Do it. That'll be a lot of fun. We'll see it. We'll track you how you do this year. Ryan Boyce said, hi, Jay, long time, first time and all that. This is exciting for me because this is the first time I've listened to Noisy and actually been able to tell you right off what it is. Ryan, like that I said, this is the most adorable uh, Noisy that you'll play. Oh, yeah. Ryan also guessed correctly but didn't win. But I like the fact that uh, Ryan agreed with me that this was the most adorable. And in fact, Ryan uh, did such a good job of explaining what this is. This is not actually a hummingbird snoring. This is a hummingbird probably coming out of torpor. Oh, cool. So a lot of people guessed hummingbird snoring, and the winner for this week was, was Justice Smith, who did guess that, and that is basically what, what most people think this video is. But I want to give an extra, extra shout-out to Ryan, because Ryan said it's the, it, the bird is probably coming out of torpor. And what the, what's actually happening here is birds really don't snore, but this bird needs to take in a lot of extra oxygen to excite its body into getting out of this deep sleep state that it could have been in. What kind of, is it a ruby-throated hummingbird? <laughs> Steve, it's an amethyst-throated sunagle. Snaggle. Snaggle? <laughs> yeah, it's amethyst-throated, Steve. You know what that means? Yes. Is amethyst purple? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Purplish. Yeah. So really cool. So the bird could have been under a lot of duress and was scared and made that noise, or it could have been coming out of torpor, but it wasn't snoring. It's not actually a snore for all of you who wrote that in. That's what that's what the internet is saying, but that's not 100% accurate. Because yeah, it sounds like it's snoring. That gets my vote so far as the most adorable noisy that I have ever played, um, and many people agree, so therefore I am the president. Thank you. <laughs> Next noisy. Wow. <laughs> okay. Here is this week's noisy. <laughs> 
Kind of weird, but there is a deeper story here. I don't want a surface answer. You need to get pretty specific about what's going on here because, you know, like everybody, it's pretty obvious we're hearing some type of electronic sounding voice of some kind. It's e- it's E.T. phoning home with a speak and say. There it is. All right. I'll see you next week, guys. <laughs> if you think you know the answer, if you think that you have a good noisy, and man, guys, I need some noisies. So send them in to WTN at theskepticsguide.org. Thank you, brother. All right. We got a, we're getting a lot of great emails recently. I don't know if it's just mm-hmm. me, just confirmation bias. But so we're going to do a couple this week. These have to do with feedback of prior segments. Uh, the first one is uh, from a long friend, great friend of the show, Steve Harris. Kara, you made an offhand comment um, that the Republican Party is kind of alone in the world on denying climate change. Right. Remember that a few shows back? Oh, I think I was saying that it's an American conception. No? Yeah, it's an American yeah. thing. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That it's a much more American thing and that the Republican Party has is the – and we know it is partisan. So here's his point was saying that, you know, it actually isn't uniquely American. There's hmm. many people throughout the world who deny climate change. It's not just American. I, I defended you. Actually, I was confusing my defense with what you actually said. I said, yeah, I, I interpreted that as – the Republican Party, we're the only country with a major political party that as a platform pretty much denies climate change. Well, and that's what I, I didn't mean. It was uniquely American in the sense that individuals around the world yes. don't also think that. I meant it was a, new, a uniquely American, like concerted phenomenon. Yeah, exactly. You know I mean, like a group of people who have like a lot of power to affect change don't but I, climate change. Yeah, but I wanted to look it up and see like, wait, what's the reality? That was my impression. Huh. Okay. And just to see, you know, what is true. And what I found was the Republican, the American Republican Party is in fact the only climate science denying party in the world. Wow. So that so is proud. that is a uniquely American phenomenon. Yeah. They have a major political party basically completely deny uh, climate change. And the article was saying they be, Republicans come in two flavors, those who did completely dismiss it as a hoax and those who accept the signs kind of in a wishy-washy sort of way, but basically say, but there's nothing we could really do about it, right? right. The, yeah, yeah, even if they yeah. accept that it's human-induced at this point, they're like, it's still not worth it to put all this money in to fuel the... Exactly. Yeah, but what they're not yeah. doing, there really isn't any significant Republican uh, suggestion trying to say, here are some free market solutions to climate change, whatever. They're not yeah. making mm. conservative ideas to help to deal with it. They're just making excuses why we don't need to deal with it. Mm-hmm. But having said that, as you say, Carrie, you're right. Individually, the climate denial is pretty rampant. His, also, his point was that even if there isn't a political party that says we deny climate change, or they may be saying, yeah, yes, we definitely have to do something about this, that doesn't mean that they actually are. That they actually are what? That they're actually doing something, they're actually being proactive about climate change. Oh, so well, Ch- China not. is a great example because China, the Chinese government officials, like, yeah, sure, a Paris Accord, wonderful, yeah, we'll do, we'll, we're on board with fixing the whole climate change thing. And yet they just always do what's in their self-interest. They're not really making any sacrifices or commitments to deal with climate change. But I do think they've had major policy changes. But it's also easier in a place like China. Well, 
it's it's kind of a, a, an illusion though because they just mm. revert back to what, whenever they need to they just they'll still burn coal when they need to. Yeah. Uh, but he, no, here, here's the interesting thing: if you look at <laughs> yeah. just public acceptance of, of climate change, guess which country in the world has the lowest public acceptance? So if you ask the question, climate change is a serious is a very serious problem. Just the percentage of people who agree with that statement, climate change is a very serious problem. What country has the lowest percentage of people who agree with that statement? Probably America or Russia. Nope, it's China at 18%. It's like way below any other country. Do you think that has to do with ideology or do you think it has to do with literacy? It's hard to say. Yeah, because I think China also has a higher rate. Yeah, a lower literacy rate than we do. But I think it's because they're oh, more uniform. I mean, they're kind of their cultural identity is uniformity almost. So it's it is, not, but there's a massive difference between rural Chinese and metropolitan Chinese ideology. Yeah. So uh, yes, that's but true. You're right. There is there's a single party there. Basically, there's a dictatorship. Yeah, right. And what the research shows is that that even public sort of denial of that climate change is real. That it's serious. That we should do something about it. Tracks really well with oil interests. So mm-hmm. like yeah. another low one is the Middle East is very low at 38%. Uh, and then the United States is, is you know, at the low end at 45%, where the global mean is, uh, the global median is 54%. The U.S. is at 45%. Uh, Latin America is pretty high at 74% uh, acceptance. So uh, that's pretty much the range. Brazil itself is at 86%. That's pretty high. Um, so yeah, so uh, America is below average, but we're not the lowest, and other like major oil producing countries are also that low or lower. And so it is interesting, you know. There, there's a lot of climate change denial around the world. It seems to track with conservative parties and with oil interests, um, even though the American uh, Republican Party is the only one that explicitly denies climate change. From a practical point of view, a lot of countries are not really giving it the priority that they should be. So you're kind of both right. You know what I mean? It's kind of how mm-hmm. I look at it. There, there is something uniquely bad about the U.S., but it's not a, an exclusively U.S. phenomenon, certainly. Also, I just want to make a correction just in that because this is what happens, right, with these emails. I feel like the emails are always off-the-cuff things we say. I just was looking up the Chinese literacy rate, and it's a lot more complicated than it seems. The overall literacy rate is actually really high, according to the Ministry of Education in or the Ministry's Illiteracy Elimination Office in China. Yeah, we're doing great. (laughs) Um, They say it's like close to 95%, but in rural areas, especially places with ethnic minorities like Tibet – it can be as high as like nearly 40%. Yeah. So it's yeah, definitely yeah. a complicated issue. But overall, actually, Chinese literacy is quite high. All right. Next email. This has to do with, again, kind of an offhand comment. We were talking about um, the AlphaGo Zero thing. And Another one? I made – it's not about AlphaGo though. I made an offhand comment about, oh, yeah, this is why – like remember we were talking about the fact that oh, I, I'm not AI. that worried about AI taking over yeah. the world. Yeah. And – that uh, so our friend Charlie from Google, right? Charlie from Google right. wrote <laughs> to it. us to say, "Hey guys, that comment of Steve's sparked this whole conversation on our boards." Oh boy! And I want to address some of the some of the things that he sent me because this is I'm getting the same kind of response that I got from like my comment about Celsius. You know, where people are saying, <laughs> Steve doesn't like the metric system, blah, blah, blah. And it's – um, so, you know, uh, at times I may make a fairly narrow specific point and then people like way over interpret it. 
and I find myself constantly correcting the misperception about what I was saying. I love the metric system. Celsius is fine. It's just not inherently metric. And <laughs> that's my only point. There's no specific reason to use it for, for environmental temperature. All right. Anyway, um, getting back to AI, the point that I made several times in the show, and I'll make it again, is that my thinking about the dangers of artificial intelligence have evolved over the last few years. And I'm actually less worried than I was for a very specific reason, but also only about a very specific threat from AI. Now, but let's do so. They, they did harp on the terminology and yeah we don't we don't like explain every nuance of the terminology every time we discuss it so this like steve was said said self aware but he was clearly talking about general ai or agi it's like yes that's correct that's what i was talking about so you know ai is artificial intelligence refers to any smart computer program right it doesn't have to be have self awareness or have general intelligence or whatever the question is about uh, self-aware, artificially intelligent computers or robots, right? And again, even there, there's more discussion about what, what does that mean to be self-aware? But generally, we're talking about, right, Bob, when we bring that up, we're talking about human-level intelligence right. and human-level awareness. So basically, a, a human being in silicon. That's basically right. what I, we're I, talking that's about. That's why AGI is, so, is such a good initialism. Um, it's a general problem solver. Yeah. Uh, which, right. takes, mm-hmm. which takes an amazing, unbelievable amount of wherewithal to, pull, to to make something like that. We are nowhere close to anything like that. We have, we're very good at solving, having these machines solve specific problems, but a general problem solver? Yes. Yeah, I think we'll get there. And and this is what we mean when we, we talk about, you know, often when we just say AI or AGI, that's what we're talking about. Right. Now, all my only point is that the science fiction vision of the robot apocalypse may be less less possible than we imagined because I actually I, – I don't think that we are going to have self-aware AGI robot butlers in every house, right? That's wow. basically my point because to do things like be a butler or drive your car, right? We're not going to have an AGI driving your car. You're going to have a very specific focused AI system drive your car. And I think this embedded AI that we are going to have in society is not going to be AI. It's going to AGI or self-aware AI. It's, you know, it's not going to be humans in in silicon driving our cars and being our butlers and doing our banking or whatever. It's going to be specific AI algorithms that maybe they're iterative, they're self-learning or whatever. That's fine, but they're not going to be AGI, right? That's my only point. Yeah, they don't what, need. They don't need to be. They don't need to be, and therefore, we're just not going to have the robot apocalypse as it has been envisioned in pretty much every single yeah, science right. fiction depiction of the robot apocalypse. Yeah, it'll yeah, come we're some like other the way. toaster rises up. Yeah, yeah right. Exactly. <laughs> it sprouts legs and yeah. starts walking around. Right, right, right. Yeah. So, but they say this is one comment. This is pulling a comment. My problem with this line of reasoning is that AI doesn't necessarily need to be self-aware in order to be dangerous. It just needs to have control over something dangerous and an optimization function that can be maximized by using that dangerous thing to cause the harm. The paperclip problem, yes. The paperclip problem. Whether or not it becomes self-aware is entirely unrelated to whether or not it is dangerous. Okay. I never said that AI 
in and of itself can never be dangerous or that putting AI that has function that maybe we don't completely understand in charge of our nukes is not inherently dangerous. Yeah. I never said that. I'm just saying we're not going to have robot butlers taking over the world, right? These yeah, are two different things. Yeah, you're basically saying things. let's not catastrophize. Let's build in all of the checks that we need to. Let's regulate. Let's right. you know think about the worst uh, possible scenario with the technology that we're you know coming up ag- yeah. up against, but that we're developing. But at the same time, let's not not do it because we're so afraid of catastrophic outcomes. Yeah, but it's also actually I'm actually uh, I'm supporting their position again. I think these are mm-hmm. people who are very concerned about the potential dangers of AI. I'm, yeah. I'm supporting it in a way that I'm saying it's not going to be the science fiction version. If anything, it's going to be something more insidious. You know, it's going to just be – Bob, but you, you threw out the paperclip problem. Why don't you explain to people what that is? Yeah, I don't well, know the, what that is. Yeah. yeah the, well, the, the idea is that you have, you have this system that, that is designed to, to be like uh, – to optimize the creation of paperclips. So it, it's very, very efficient, amazingly efficient at creating these paperclips. But somebody you know, wrote the algorithm a little sloppily and it just creates the entire – it turns the biosphere into paperclips. You know, it basically <laughs> yeah. turns the surface of the earth to paperclips. And sure, yeah, huh. you could have this run away process that, that that does something like that and yeah you got to kind of think about that stuff when you have this this type of uh, mechanism that, right. that is going to continually create this product yeah you got to think of you know what can go wrong you know when it's doing that so sure so that's one of the classic issues that, that yeah up. and it's interestingly my point is actually that focused ai is more powerful than we thought it was and with power comes great responsibility, right? So uh, obviously yeah. there's the potential for bad things to happen is also increased with power. And of, of course. course we have to be careful. I never said anything that could be construed as, oh, we don't longer have to be careful no, you've never about said that. AI. You've never okay. said that. Here's another comment. I've heard him make the, that argument several times and I can't help but find it silly. I never made the argument. Building an AGI <laughs> would – so the, now, the, now they're referring to – well, we wouldn't do it because we don't have to. Again, I never said that. In fact, I said the yeah. opposite when we talked about this, Bob, if you remember. Building an AGI would win you international acclaim and recognition. You definitely get a Turing Award oh out of it. Not to mention just how interesting figuring out how to do it would be. I completely mm-hmm. agree. I said when Bob brought that up, I said, Bob, I agree with you. We will do it. We will do it for research. We will do it for neuroscience. We will do it just to do it. We're just not going to make an army of butlers who have it. Right. Well, just be careful. It'll be it'll be air gapped in a lab somewhere, you know, where it should be. Um, Yeah, it's not going to be a problem. But yeah, that's where that's whatever. But it's not going to be it's not going to (laughs) be controlling our nuclear arsenal like in the Colossus. Remember the movie with this is Colossus. Yeah. Right. Like they they build an AI. (laughs) Think about this is like a 1950s movie. They build Uh, an AI and they immediately put it in charge of the entire nuclear arsenal. That was brilliant. (laughs) And then it takes over the world. It blows up New York and Moscow and says, all right, now I have control of the world. Um, all right. And yeah, then the so, fi- so, yeah, see, right? Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I agree with pretty much everything you've said. And, and yeah, I think that we are, we will still march towards an AGI. Somebody, the allure, I think, is just too great. Yeah, of course. Uh, and we're going uh, to do but it. Hopefully, yeah, we won't need to necessarily put it in charge of things that could that could wipe us all out. So It won't be yeah, like I, Johnny Cat, where there's a soon. robot driving your car. It's not going to be that way, right? All right. One more. 
If no. self-awareness is a spectrum rather than a binary characteristic, the entire notion of building a self-aware machine is as poorly defined as building a tall structure. So what they're saying is that saying self that self-awareness is a continuum, not a binary property. Sure, and we've talked about that on the show before. However, it's actually only partly correct. Mm. Um, it's a false dichotomy about a false dichotomy. How do you like that? Whoa, so nice. because <laughs> self-awareness is a dichotomy and it's not a dichotomy right. because a, cr- a critical mass you need to write it involves critical mass a critical mass of well yes of and no something. so that's the thing yes and no so i would say rather that it is a dichotomy in that you can have zero self-awareness right you can have uh, algorithms or uh, software systems that have no that have nothing that you would consider reasonably self-awareness they're basically their their self awareness is zero, but then there are other systems that neural networks or whatever or things that are meant to uh, to replicate, replicate the functioning of a brain that they're on the continuum, and then that is a continuum. Sure. So yes, self awareness is a continuum, but the binary part is that you could be on the continuum or not on the continuum. And what I'm saying is a lot of our software algorithms are not even on the continuum. They are not in any way doing something that is self-aware. And that once we get on the continuum, then you have that threshold issue, Bob, where it's, you have to have enough right. self-awareness that you're awake, right? That's another sort of thresholdy kind of phenomenon, right? So people... It's like, yeah, consciousness is a, is a continuum, but there's a point at which you're awake and a point at which you're not awake. Right. There's a it's threshold like, phenomenon. Right. And it's it's funny you use those words because, you know, when, when you're dreaming and you're, you're, you're shopping in a store in a dream and a pink elephant walks by you uh, without tusks and, uh, you're, <laughs> yeah. and, you're, oh, and you're like – and you don't think anything of it. Why? Because you, ha- you don't have, you don't have that, that, that critical threshold of your frontal lobe engaged where you would think, oh, wait, that's odd. It's just you know, that threshold hasn't been reached. So, so anything goes. Um, so that's kind of kind of roughly related to what you. But that's an about. altered just, state of that's an altered state of consciousness. It's exactly it, the REM right, sleep, but it, yeah. right, but it deals with this critical threshold. Yes, of, uh, right of of engagement. That's a, it's it's a different plateau, right? There are different right. plateaus of consciousness. One is REM right. sleep. A different one is wakefulness. But right. wakefulness is a threshold phenomenon. They said it's not if it's a continuum. Then no, it, it's actually that's only one aspect of it, and it's much more complicated than that. Okay. But I thought it's very interesting. The whole discussion I thought was it was extremely interesting. But these both of these emails kind of more the AI one. And also Kara, you mm-hmm. made a comment about raw goat's milk and we had a ton of emails about Oh my gosh, so many people were offended when I said something. Guys, the point is not about goat's milk, it's about it being raw. Yeah, the <laughs> like, operative I word there is saying, raw. Yeah, I wasn't saying it's bad to drink goat's milk if you're lactose intolerant because it has a much lower lactose content content i was right. using raw goat's milk as a synecdoche for a lot of the like woo <laughs> nice. that you see in these right. um one person one person one person actually said you're against goat's milk i'm not listening to your show anymore well they they clearly weren't listening in the first place and right. one, guy, <laughs> one guy reached yeah, right? yeah. out i was actually so happy about this one guy who reached out and he was like raw oats what's wrong with raw oats and i was like oh raw you misheard oats. me i said raw goat's milk i eat raw oats all the time um but then he was saying you know i'm vegan and i wonder if we're lumping these things together and, and i actually responded and steve did too and clarified that what we're saying is we're bummed out that the environmental movement is so enmeshed sometimes, especially in these brick and mortar yeah. stores. Pull out the with, good stuff. Yeah, yeah, that we almost like it, 
it's hard to, you know, vote with your dollar and do all those things. And it's, it's, it's a difficult consumer position to yes. be in. But of course, I just thought it was really funny that he was like, raw oats. And I was like, hey, you're <laughs> vegan. So you're not drinking raw goat's milk anyway. <laughs> all right. Good on but you. <laughs> all of this is leading to the next segment of the show, which is a name that logical fallacy. Ooh. But I've kind of done that in a while. I know, but I've kind of already gone through the fallacies. But I, what I want to do is bring them all together and talk about the principle of charity. Uh, now, yeah. I, I'm gonna I'm kind of morphing the name that logical fallacy segment into a lessons of critical thinking. You know? <laughs> so here we go. The principle of charity. Very important, perhaps one of the most, I think, tenets of critical thinking that is most abused. It's definitely in the top five if it's not number one or two. The principle of charity basically states that you should make a conscious effort to interpret what somebody else says or writes or whatever, somebody else's position in the most charitable way possible. It's basically the opposite of the straw man fallacy, right? The straw man fallacy is you make a a simplified, easy to knock down and actually unfair and inaccurate version of of your opponent's or of the other side's position. Then you attack that. But the charity says, no, you give them every benefit of the doubt and you try to say, all right, if I interpret what you're saying in the most charitable way, this is the best version of your point, as I understand it, that I could think of. So let me talk about that. Uh, but it also means that if there is something ambiguous in what someone else is saying, then don't just fill in the gaps with your assumptions. Ask them to clarify what their position is. But what I find happening, and it's just happened multiple times in the last week or two, which is why I wanted to talk about this specifically, where, and this happened with the CIA discussion as well, where people take one nugget of what we're saying, and then they extrapolate from that an entire belief system. So what I think happens is that people do take this binary approach to some topic. Like you either think AI is going to destroy the world or you think it's perfectly safe. Or <laughs> you think the CIA, you love the CIA and everything that they do and you think they're innocent of everything or you understand that they are an illegal, evil organization trying to destroy the world, right? And or so, it's a knowledge deficit problem or it's absolutely not a knowledge deficit right, problem. Right, exactly. Black and, and white. Yep. And then – they have a position and maybe they're very vested in that position or they, they feel very strongly about it. And when anyone says anything that could even be mildly interpreted as being on the other side, then they assume that you're on the other side. Therefore, you hold all of the points that I don't like. And I'm going to argue against those points as if you have them. Right, you guys have mm-hmm. sure have experienced this on a regular basis. Well, this you even happens. have it with something as extreme as partisanship. If oh, somebody oh, yeah. says I'm a Republican, totally. you might assume, oh, you're a an entrenched climate denialistic yes. young Earth creationist. Like, no, <laughs> you know, yeah. I never said any <laughs> no, of those exactly. things. That's right. Yeah, beware, beware the broad brushstrokes. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, I was going to bring that up because the, the partisanship is, I think, where probably people encounter it most of the yeah. time. So we have somebody in our extended, extended, extended extended family, who is a, an extreme right-wing partisan mm-hmm. in this case. We also have people in our family who are extreme left-wing partisans. We, mm-hmm. But in this particular case, this person is famous for 
making just constantly attacking straw men. And he mm-hmm. basically is like, well, he has this cardboard cartoon of what quote unquote liberals think. And he thinks mm-hmm. that every liberal thinks all of these things. Wow. And as soon as you disagree with him in the slightest way on any political topic, he immediately assumes you are this cardboard liberal yeah. with all of the features that he associates with it. So what the, what happens in practice is that he never actually listens to what you're saying or what you're writing. He's never of really engaging with you or your actual opinions. He doesn't solicit your positions or understand them. He's just constantly arguing against this fiction that has been erected in his narrative about what this label thinks and does and behaves, right? Mm-hmm. So that's an extreme example. But guys, back me up. That's pretty much what this guy's doing, right? We oh, all yeah. know what we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. It's uh, about the laziest method of thinking. It's totally lazy. Have. It's totally intellectually lazy. So, but again, I'm giving you an extreme example to illustrate the principle, but we all do this to a more subtle, in a more subtle way, you know, frequently. And we, like, if somebody says something, favorable about some alternative medicine. I have to make sure I don't just assume, oh, you're this woo person who believes all this mm-hmm. crap. You know, you have to just back up and, you know, just ask people what to, to clarify or, or to, you know, don't, don't assume that anyone believes something that they haven't explicitly said that they believe. Mm-hmm. That, that's a good rule of thumb that's right there. Rule. Yeah. If, you, if, so if I didn't explicitly say this, don't assume that I believe it. I might. But try asking and understanding what I'm actually saying. Yeah. I mean, it's also – it's it's like a fundamental skill you have to develop in, in academic writing, scholarly writing. Like if I'm going to yeah. write a journal article where I disagree with somebody else's interpretation of a study, I'd better look at their interpretation with the rosiest glasses possible – um, right. When I do that, otherwise I'm actually kind of being unethical, mm-hmm. and that's important to remember. All right, that's your skeptical lesson for today. I'll be doing more of these. You know, and we're, we're starting. To, we're going to start to incorporate more segments into the show, and it's not going to be like every week the same segments. We'll be mixing in different segments every week. So we'll be doing a lot of experimenting, and we'll see which ones survive. Hopefully, the cream will rise to the top. Well, everyone, we're going to take a quick break from our show to talk about one of our sponsors this week, LinkedIn. You know, most people know LinkedIn just as a career networking site, but LinkedIn is an incredible place to actually find a next hire or employee for your company. It's so much better than just putting a post up on a job board because you could actually vet the people out on LinkedIn, look at their look at their picture, look at their resume, see all their qualifications for the job. And most importantly, 70% of the U.S. workforce is already on LinkedIn. So it's the best way to find the right person who will help you grow your business. And that's why a new hire is made every 10 seconds using LinkedIn. So go to linkedin.com slash skeptics and get $50 off your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash skeptics to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. It's time for science or fiction. Each week, I come up with three science news items or facts, two real and one fake, and then, I, and then I challenge my panel of skeptics to tell me which one is the fake. We have a theme this week. 
Do you guys – when was that? I think, Kara, you were involved. Was it on the show we were talking about bears and like what to do and what not to do around bears? Yeah, yeah well, we? it, it was mountain lions to begin with. And mountain lions, yeah. Yeah, and then it turned into like just any wild animal that's trying to I eat I don't you. remember if that made it to air, but I said, you know what? Because <laughs> we, we, we all sort of kind of remembered what the reality was. Yeah. So I said, I'm going to look it up in detail and then nice. test everyone's knowledge on what to do when you encounter a bear. That's the theme. <laughs> uh, okay. Wow. Okay. This is great. Yes. I love this. All right. <laughs> All right. Here we go. Right. Especially those Chicago bears. All right. <laughs> right. Are the you bears. Define bears. which kind of bear, like <laughs> grizzly bears. versus black? So, all right. That's a very good question. <laughs> okay. Just to say, if I say bear, then it's either grizzly or black, or I will say grizzly or, ba- or black. Okay, cool. But if I just say bear, it's both. Okay. <laughs> what about polar? So we're just talking grizzly and black bears. Okay. No just pants. grizzly and black bears. Yeah, not because polar bears are kind of a different animal. They're, they're in terms of their aggressiveness and everything. They'll kill you, the polar yeah. bears. But, and only right, a this, small percentage of people listening to the show right now are encountering polar bears on yes, a regular Yes, that's, that's correct. So these are grizzly yeah. bears and black bears, which will either be named specifically or I'm referring to both. Okay, here we go. Item number one. You startle a grizzly bear with her three cubs. The bear charges you and knocks you to the ground. You should roll onto your stomach and play dead. Item number two. Your best defense against an aggressive bear is bear pepper spray. And item number three. You come across a black bear with a deer carcass. They stomp the ground and roar. That's the bear, not the deer carcass. (laughs) You should stand tall and make a loud noise, but not run. So two of these are correct. One is incorrect. But we'll talk about how to survive a bear encounter in general once we go through these. Bob, go first. All right. So I'm going to start at uh, number three. Stand tall and make a loud noise, but don't run. I think, yes, from what I have read, um, I haven't done a deep dive, but I have encountered it. That makes a lot of sense. I, I think from what I know, don't never run. Just never run. Because cause if they want, they will just totally outrun you. You're not going to be faster than, than, than a bear. So, so running – uh, I think it's generally bad advice. Um, so let's go to the second one in the middle. Aggressive bear, bear pe- pepper spray. Wow. I don't know about that one. Your best at defense. If the bear is aggressive, my my understanding is that if a bear wants to attack you and eat you, there's pretty much nothing you, you, you could do. Just do what you can. Try to punch him. Try, you know, fight him off. But if they if they want you, you are you are done. So uh, an aggressive bear, yeah. I mean, I, I think that that might be fine. That, I mean, if it's if it's specifically bear pepper spray, all right. Do they make that stuff? Yeah, I'm sure they could make that amazingly offensive to a bear. So damn, but I never came across that in any of the any of the times I've read about that. All right, so let's go to the first one then. The the classic scene of a grizzly bear with the three cubs. Uh, the bear charges you. So you're on the ground. You're knocked on the ground, probably injured because if a bear knocks you on the ground, you know, you're not going to be feeling too good. Roll on your stomach and play dead. The play dead scenario. Oof. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's generally considered to be just such, such an old wives tale. Yeah, what the hell? I'll say that's, I'll say that's fiction. Play dead fiction. Okay, Jay. Yeah, so there's so much urban legend in all this, you know? Okay, so you startle a bear with its three cubs. Then the bear charges you, knocks you to the ground. And the the comment here is you should roll onto your stomach and play dead. I think in that situation, that's the correct answer because the bear is is defending itself in a sense. It's defending the cubs. So if you if you if you make yourself less of a threat, because what can you do? Because in my opinion, you shouldn't run away from a bear or climb a tree. <laughs> climb a tree. 
People say climb trees and bears really? climb trees really good. Yeah, bears climb really trees like good. I've never freakishly good. Yeah, climbing a tree like that's like the getaway. It doesn't. Nope, not going to work with a bear. Um, yeah, I, you're going to injure yourself on the climb more than as much as the bear. See, because you're not in this first one. You're not being attacked. Like Steve said, it, it knocked you to the ground. You're you're. It, it, he didn't say it's currently biting you and raking you. It just kind of checked you. It, <laughs> Yeah, like the bear it isn't currently up. the bear isn't currently like eating you. You know what I mean? Like, not yet. So, I think if the bear is actively <laughs> eating you, all bets are off with all of these. So this the second one here, this best defense against an aggressive bear is pepper spray. This is a weird thing, Steve, because like, what are other things? Can you have a gun? Can you have a, a pogo stick that can jump you, you know, 100 yards away? You know, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I will even better than a gun. All right. So I, I would wow. actually say because of pepper sprays, wide angle kind of hit, most people don't know how to fire a gun. And it's hard to kill a bear with a, with a gun. It's very hard to kill a black bear, a big bear with a gun. So I think that one is science, even though I've seen video of bear using pepper spray to flavor salmon. And I'm not kidding. I saw that no. video. It was amazing. <laughs> and this last one here, so I'm, I'm, I guess by default, you come across a black bear with a deer carcass. They stomp the ground and roar. You should stand tall and make a loud noise, but not run. Because I've heard that too. Like you pick up your bike and you shake it to make yourself look bigger. I think I think the third one is the fake. <laughs> I think the, the one about the stomping. Deer yeah, the deer carcass one is the fake. All right, Kara. I saw The Revenant, and we all know that that was a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm pretty um, sure in The Revenant. Documentary. Yeah, the grizzly bear tore him to shreds even though he was playing dead, but he lived at least. I'm not sure he was playing dead. I think he was playing dying. And so in this <laughs> specific situation, you talk about the three cubs. So you are scaring a bear who's trying to protect her children. This is very important. So she charges you to get you to leave her kids alone. So I think in this case, if you play dead, you are no longer a threat to her. I think she's going to leave you alone. I have totally heard of bear pepper spray. I think that it's what you're supposed to carry with you if you go backpacking. I don't think you're ever supposed to shoot a bear. You'll probably go to prison. So best defense, that's a tough one, though. This could be tricky. I don't know if a gun works better than pepper spray um, in terms of your your personal best defense, but your most ethical defense is definitely, I think, pepper spray. But I also think the last one is true. So let me start to to pick it apart a little. You come across a black bear with a deer carcass. So this bear is eating. Or at least it's freshly gotten a kill or it's coming back to an old kill. They are trying to tell you, leave me alone. This is my kill. It's not your kill. You say, no, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm here. I want to eat your food. I think that it might charge you then. I think in this case, you should walk away as quickly as possible. So I'm going to say this is the um, fiction. And Devin. Uh, yeah, I. that's the conclusion I was coming to as well, Kara, the same idea is that the black bear is more, you know, wants this food and it's stomping in the ground and roaring to say, this is my meal. You get away now. Now, if you go and stand tall and make a loud noise and confront it, then you're going to you're effectively provoking the bear and you're going to fight for its food. And it has, I think, more of a chance to want to attack you because it thinks you're taking its dinner away. So that's why I think that that one's going to be the fiction. So, Bob, this is your turn to be alone. Every week so far this year, someone has been alone. Yeah, I'm not confident. 
You're not confident? All right, let's well, you all agreed on the on the number two, so we'll start there. Your best defense against an aggressive bear is bear pepper spray. You all think this one is science, and this one is science. Carrie, you are correct. If you are backpacking, hiking in any place where you might encounter a bear in the wild, you should absolutely have bear pepper spray on you. Every reference I read was like, well, of course you have your bear pepper spray on you. Like it's like a a given. Like this is like, this is what you have. Now these, this is not like the little pepper spray you have like mace in your purse. This, oh, it's this more is, like a fire it's extinguisher. It's like, it's like a fire extinguisher, and it has a 35-foot range. Whoa. Yeah, yeah so you're and not it spraying it. Di- stream. Yes, yeah, so this, is, this is what you're spraying at the bear when the bear is 30 feet away from you, right? That's yeah, the whole like idea. last defense, yeah. And like, you, 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 spray it, you spray it above their head so that it falls down into their eyes, their nose. And Jay, it's what you said is correct too, but bears like the pepper. So they say do not <laughs> spray it on yourself or your campsite or your tent because that will attract the bears. It's not like they don't like the flavor. They actually That's like hilarious. it. But they just don't want it. They don't want it in their eyes. You got to yeah. spray it in their eyes or their I said wet that they nose. put it on fish. I yes. know. That's so right. Don't spray it in their mouth because they'll be like, mmm, thanks for the appetizer. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, people are poivre. Like kiwi fruit. I don't like, I like eating it, but I don't like rubbing it on my eyes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But don't you also, you mentioned that like, it's like, duh, have your bear pepper spray. Don't you also want to make sure that you have a bear box too, like a small bear container, because they're completely smell proof and you carry it in your backpack. The last thing you want to do is have basically a food lure. Absolutely. Food. So the other, yeah, other yeah. recommendations for safe hiking in bear mm-hmm. country is don't have anything that would attract the bear. That means yeah. no food that they could smell. And when you're making camp, put, hang up your food in the tree. Don't hang put it, it in your tent. Yeah, bag yeah. it up. Mm-hmm. Bag it up. Hang it. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm seeing bear pepper spray online for 50 bucks. So I think if you're, yeah, probably worth 50, it. 50 bucks. Totally worth it. Yeah. Let's weigh the, the risk benefit analysis <laughs> yeah. here. All right. Let's go back to number one. You startle a grizzly bear with her three cubs, right? The classic scenario. The bear charges you and knocks you to the ground. You should roll onto your stomach and play dead. Uh, Bob, you think this one is the fiction because you think the play dead thing is a myth. Everyone else thinks this one is science. And this one is... Science. Crap. Sorry, Bob. It is. It All right. was a documentary. This is a good point. Before we go on to the third one, let me to, to explain this one, I have to ex- kind of explain them all. Um, so let's back up a little bit. So there are essentially three situations in which you are encountering a bear, right? Or three three attitudes that the bear has. One is that the bear is acting defensively. And that means that they're defending either their cubs or their food, right? When bears are acting defensively, they will stomp the ground, you know, like slap the ground, they'll roar, they they will try to intimidate you. They're basically saying, get the hell out of here because they're scared of you or they're defending their turf. When you're in that situation, this also relates to number three. This is why three is the fiction. So I'll just say that. You come across a black bear with a deer carcass, so now he's also in a defensive position. They stomp the ground in war because that's what they do. You should stand tall and make a loud noise but not run. That is the fiction because you should abs- – you guys, you guys sussed that out really well. Not you, Bob, but the other three guys. You, you, oh, you, you reasoned your way through it very well because what you should do in when you encounter a bear – you startle a bear or you do something where the bear's acting defensively is you make yourself small, 
You quietly reassure, that's okay. I'm just, I'm going away. Here I go. And then you slowly back away. So you're like, I'm not, I'm not threatening you. I'm not, I'm, look, I'm tiny. I'm quiet. I'm backing away slowly. You don't run. I kind of threw that in there as a spoiler. That was to, to fool you. But the other part, you do not stand tall. I know that was deliberate, but you don't stand tall and make noise. If you, if you happen to have the sleeping hummingbird noise on your phone, play that. Yeah. Right. I'm really tiny. You are supposed to, though, tell me if I'm wrong, Steve, because I'm sure you read a lot of literature in coming up with these. You are supposed to speak, right? Like, hey, hold on. the bear I'm to getting realize there. you're human. That's a different situation. Oh, okay. So, Interesting. So let's just, let's just talk about the defensive situation. The defensive situation mm-hmm. is you startled the bear, they have cubs or they have food, you back mm-hmm. away slowly and smallly, right? Okay. Now... But if the bear physically contacts you, that's the knocks you to the ground. It doesn't have to be knocked you to the ground. If they physically contact you, oh God, what you should do is roll onto your stomach, cover your head and your neck, and play dead. You spread your best. legs, spread your legs so they can't roll you over. You don't want to expose your soft parts. Mm. Now, I'm all soft. Now, <laughs> the, and if the, the bear may poke you, may bite you, may play with you, whatever, may make sure that you're not threatening. Just let them do that. Because they don't want to eat you, right? They just want to subdue you. Right. And then uh, the bear will hopefully walk away. And they say, wait, do not move until you are absolutely sure the bear is out of sight. Even if it's a half an hour, just Mm. wait until the bear is gone, gone, gone. However, however, they say, if the bear continues to attack you or, Kara, starts Uh to eat you. (laughs) Starts to eat you. Then that means they're not going anywhere. What that means is they have shifted into a predatory attitude. And then this is where you fight desperately for your life. Yeah, like punch him in the throat, the eyes, the nose. Then you are you're gonna lose. You're probably gonna lose, but you are fighting for your life at that point. You then don't. Once they start like eating you, or like they're just not leaving you alone, the playing dead thing has failed. Now just punch him in the nose, right? Yeah. All right. Now, of course, at any point, if you had your bear pepper spray, you know (laughs) that would have been a good point to use that. So now, if a bear is hunting you, they're predatory. Uh oh. So bears are stealth hunters. They sneak up behind you. Oh, my right? gosh. So if a bear is Terrifying. stomping the ground and slapping the ground and roaring, they're not hunting you. They're trying to scare you away. They're defensive. Right. If, they're, if, they're, if they're hunting you, they're going to try to sneak up behind you. They're in ninja mode. And then you're dead, right? So almost certainly if that bear wants to hunt you down and eat you and, they, and you're in their crosshairs, you're probably dead. But – now it's like you're you're in desperation mode. Then again, your best bet is the pepper spray. So if you have the pepper spray, that's that's the time to use it. When you notice that a bear is hunting you, you hit them with the pepper spray and you try to get out of there. Don't just turn and run though, because then there's like the bears run twice as fast as people. They will just run you down and kill you. Do not climb a tree. Bears love it when their prey goes into trees. <laughs> it's like it's like going down a dark alley with a big chain fence at the end of it. They actually like throwing either other bears or prey out of trees in order to kill them. That's one of their hunting uh, strategies. Yeah, let gravity they, do the work. Uh, yeah. They also prefer they prefer 
attacking prey that's above them in a tree, especially other bears, because it's it's hard to hunt to to fight down from a tree. It's actually really mm-hmm. they're, so they're at an advantage when they're on the ground and you're in a tree. They like it, so mm-hmm. don't think you're going to get away from by climbing a tree, and don't make yourself a deer and just turn and run. Yeah. But yeah, I, I'm uh, picturing a bear chasing you, and like, all right, I'm going to get this mother. The guy climbs right. a tree, and the guy, I see the bear slowing down. Like, yeah, okay, I can take my time now. I'll just roll over <laughs> so, there. Yeah. Don't have yeah, to yeah. rush. He's dead. He's, He's got nowhere to go. So <laughs> these are now the oh two least likely scenarios that you are going to encounter: a defensive bear because you startled it with a carcass or cubs, or a predatory bear because they don't generally hunt people, but. If they're doing it, it's because they're desperate or whatever. You look tasty. Who knows? Yeah, it's probably because so, yeah, because of climate change or habitat loss. Maybe, <laughs> like, maybe it's because something the, we did. The most likely scenario in which you are going to encounter a bear is just there are bears in the environment where you are. They are neither defensive nor predatory. Mm-hmm. That your garbage. That is the situation where you want to be loud. Because, you want to be human. Yes. Yeah, so that they say travel in large groups. And the one reference I said actually said there's never been a reported attack of a bear on a large group of people. It's almost always single people, lone people. So if you're going to be traveling in bear country, travel in groups. But why do you have any friends? And (laughs) travel with Don't go hiking in Yellowstone alone. Yeah, then talk loudly or sing because bears will hear you coming and they will get out of your way. Because they oh, don't want, nice. they don't want to deal with you. They, don't, you know, they, they, they don't want. They are afraid of people. They want to get yeah. out of your way. So yeah. just give the, yeah. your your greatest risk is startling them. So you won't startle them if they hear you coming a mile away. Now be careful if you're near uh-huh. a, if you're near a river because the river will be masking noise. So you got to be louder yeah. if you're near a river. Um, and you shouldn't be. They say don't you know have your earbuds in because you need to be able to be uh, you know environmentally aware. Can you imagine uh, going to Yellowstone and going on a beautiful hike and like listening to music the whole time? Yeah. Why would you do that? I can't that? imagine that, but yeah, that's not a good thing to do. And again, Teenagers. If, if you get if if you if a bear's just curious about you, like you're you encounter a bear in a field and they're like they're not defensive, but they're not hunting you. They're just like, Oh, I wonder what that is over here, and they start to get close. That's when you make noise, stand tall. So you say, Get out of you, yell at the bear, you say, Get the hell out of here. You know, if they then start to like make become threatening, then you break out your pepper spray. But other than that, you just sort of just yell at the bear and try to get, and they and then they'll probably you'll scare them off. They should be afraid of us. They yeah, that's right. And most wild bears are because their only experience with humans has been threatening experience. Right, right. Now there was actually a study that one of the websites I was reading referenced that said that um, that that showed that people who defended themselves with guns actually had more mauling damage than people who defended themselves with pepper spray. Whoa. So Jay's correct that most people are probably not going to take down a bear with a single shot, and you're just going to piss it off. Yeah, because oh it knows it's coming from you. Yeah. Yikes. <laughs> and I know there's probably hunters out there going, I'd take it down with a gun. Okay, sure you would. <laughs> Fine. If you are confident, like if you're a hunter and you're confident, then great. That's good. But we're talking statistically, like your average schmuck. You're probably – don't be confident because you happen to have a gun on you. Well, Especially also, like am I wrong? Bear. They're like, hard to take down. you go to jail if you kill a grizzly uh, bear? I don't know. I, I don't think so. I mean I think you might get a fine if it wasn't hunting season and, you know. Yeah, but you I, don't, don't, I don't even think you can hunt grizzly bears, can you? I don't know. I don't know. 
I don't know. But if you were defending your life, I'm, I, don't, I don't know what, what the what – the, I didn't get into that aspect yeah. of the legality of defending yourself by killing a grizzly bear. But yeah, so don't be overconfident because you have a gun. You're, you're better off having pepper spray. and But you need to be able to, first of all, identify a grizzly from a black bear because there's a couple of differences between how they will behave. And you mm-hmm. need to know – read what the bear's uh, emotions emotion is and act accordingly. But that's, that's your basic framework. If it's defensive, back away. If it's curious, scare it away. And if it's predatory, pepper spray it or fight like hell. Ooh. It is, it is legal under the law to defend yourself from a grizzly bear, but there has to be actual evidence that it was, in fact, threatening you. It can't just mm-hmm. be when you see a grizzly bear, and it can't just be because it's threatening your wildlife. Good. Right. Right. Go yeah, fish and wildlife. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. Nice. So I am on Amazon right now ordering bear pepper spray and I'm <laughs> going to leave the house again. <laughs> okay. So we have, we have like black that. bears in Connecticut. You occasionally encounter black them. Black bears are so much less of a concern. They are. So that's, a, so that's the difference. This is the difference. I, I, didn't, I, I alluded to this. If you encounter a black bear that's curious about you, scare it away. If you encounter a grizzly bear, do not try to scare it away. Do not make a loud noise. Do not try to intimidate it because they will go, oh, yeah, and they'll come over there and F you up. (laughs) Grizzly bears, you always back away quietly and just hope that they don't have an interest in you. Black bears, you could yell at. Grizzly bears, never yell at What about brown bears? Brown bears are supposed to be much more aggressive. Now, why are you complicating my story? Another, <laughs> what about those polar bears? What about sun bears? Bug bears. Have you guys Bug ever bears. seen a sun bear? Teddy bears. Water bears. Teddy bears. Have you guys ever seen a sun bear? No. I've seen at the zoo. Yeah, aren't they It's cool? a real thing. They're, yeah. Mm-hmm. Look yeah. it up. Southeast They're Asia. Yeah. Uh, yep, Asian. They're amazing. There you go. So now I've saved your life. Thank you. Serious. And those are the bear necessities. Yeah. Good work, no, you did not. All right. Evan, give us a quote. Instead of being afraid of that darkness, we should bring everyone to the edge of it and say, look, here's an area that needs illumination. Bring fire, torches, candles, anything you can think of that will cast light. Then we can lay down our foundations and build our great buildings, cure diseases, invent fabulous new machines, and whatever else we think the human race should be doing. But first of all, we need some light. And that was written by Eugenia Chang who's a category theory mathematician and the author of the book, How to Bake Pie, as in the number, pie. P-I, how to bake pie, P-I. Like for pie day. Not not (laughs) P-I-E. Correct. Thank you, Evan. You're welcome. Thank you guys for joining me this week. Thanks, Steve. Steve. Sure, man. And until next week, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is produced by SGU Productions dedicated to promoting science and critical thinking. For more information, visit us at theskepticsguide.org. Send your questions to info at theskepticsguide.org. And if you would like to support the show and all the work that we do, go to patreon.com slash skepticsguide and consider becoming a patron and becoming part of the SGU community. Our listeners and supporters are what make SGU possible. And remember that today's show is brought to you by KiwiCo. KiwiCo creates super cool hands-on projects for kids of all ages that make learning about science, technology, engineering, art, and math fun. And you know what? KiwiCo is offering the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe listeners the chance to try them for free. To redeem this offer and learn more, visit kiwico.com skeptics.